Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer. And I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm super excited to chat with sleep consultants Marley Boyle and Leah Corkum. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Marley and Leah. Thank, Thank you. For well, thanks so much for being here. How about getting us started by introducing yourselves? Sure. I'll go first. So I'm Marley Boyle, and I am a registered respiratory therapist, and I'm certified in clinical sleep health. So I spent the better part of a decade working in a sleep disorder clinic and lab, and I was on a really cool team um, of a board-certified sleep neurologist and a psychiatrist and a sleep tech. And we got pretty resourceful because here in Nova Scotia, there is only one sleep lab and it has about a two-year wait list. Well, that was prior to the pandemic. It's probably longer now. So we got pretty um, good at, at learning how to identify sleep disorders and treat them without using the sleep lab or using that as just a confirmation. And um working there, I I had some incredible experience. And then when the pandemic started, we started to think about the clinic had actually closed and that a lot of sleep problems can be prevented. And there's a lot of things that we can do behavioral and things like that, that can prevent some of these problems from happening or be treated without having to go to a sleep disorder clinic. So I became a huge sleep nerd. (laughs) And I actually uh, kind of got Leah into sleep by constantly just talking about it all the time with her. And, um, and then that's kind of how Sleepworks was founded. And I'm Leah, Leah Corkum, and I'm a licensed practical nurse. Uh, I started out with a degree in psychology, I'm always very interested in what makes people tick. Um, I went through nursing and, you know, I think Marley and I both got into healthcare, hoping to help people and to make a difference. And, you know, I found in my nursing career that sometimes um, that's not really how it feels on the everyday um, at work. So yeah, as Marley said, she really inspired me with sleep, you know, coming home from the clinic with all of these like really interesting stories. And at the time, by chance, we happened to be living together for a couple of years. Um, And so she'd come home with these life-changing stories of how sleep changes person's life. And myself, I was a lifelong, terrible sleeper. Um, From the time I was a really young child, that was my identity. My identity was somebody who didn't sleep and who was a difficult sleeper. So um, as I began to learn more things and Marley sort of infiltrated my brain, I got pretty obsessed with it and and learning about it and learning everything I could. Um, and I actually became certified as a child and infant sleep consultant. Um, and I and we both got certified for insomnia therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And yeah, we started, you know, peddling this sleep knowledge around Nova Scotia, whoever, who, whoever would listen to us talk about it. Um, and then, yeah, eventually it became a business. So we, we founded Sleepworks and um, made our passion become something that could be a career. So it was pretty exciting. I should say, and I mean, it's a real niche. If you were saying that in Nova Scotia, there was the one clinic and then it closed. 
No, sorry. We had one sleep lab. We were a clinic that did close though. So we were the, yeah, yeah. We closed at the beginning of the pandemic. But it seems like a real, there's a real gap there that Sleepworks is filling. So like way to go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely, it's been sort of like um, paving a bit of a path because there really isn't a blueprint for this kind of a business because of the nature of what we do. We're not medical doctors, so um, we're not um, coming at it from the same perspective as a cert- like a CPAP or a sleep apnea clinic or um, a psychiatrist maybe doing cognitive behavioral therapy. It's this whole other section of more like a culture, uh, a coaching and consulting. Um, situation. So yeah, there really isn't a blueprint. We look at things like maybe a massage therapy clinic or a personal trainer and kind of education, people who do education. And we sort of molded that all into one thing to try to find a direction for ourselves because it is niche. Um, And the tricky thing about sleep is that everybody does it. And so many people struggle with it, that there's a million different directions that you could take it. So interestingly enough, we ended up working with a lot of lawyers, which is how we came to find you, Shelley. Mm -hmm. You know, somehow that because lawyers are a group of people who as a whole struggle with sleep and struggle with a balance in their life when it comes to sleep, we ended up just through talking to different people and different connections we had through business. Um speaking to a large number of lawyers across Canada about sleep. And I think that is just fantastic. The the outrage and education, because, you know, being a lawyer myself, we tend to pride ourselves in, you know, how little we can sleep and still function. I have function in quotation marks. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, uh, I think that it's just fantastic that you are reaching out to lawyers. And I know you've been working with a lot of the law societies and some of the insurers. And so hitting a large group of, uh, of lawyers all at the same time. I'm just sort of wondering, you know, maybe if we can go back to the basics. I think we kind of know intuitively that it's important to sleep, but we kind of forget that in our busy day-to-day life. And I'm just wondering if we can kind of outline some of the benefits, like why is it important to get a good night's sleep? Oh, I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything will be easier the the next day. So with specifically lawyers and and just corporate culture in general, just like you had said, Shelly, people wear sleep deprivation like a badge of honor, like it's a strength to be able to go without sleep. We kindly like to remind everyone there is no training, no professional designation, there's no position in a job that actually makes you immune to the effects of sleep loss. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a culture um, to to believe that you know we can survive on you know four hours of sleep. Some of the benefits are you know. Our, our brain needs sleep to function cognitively. So for us to be able to think clearly, executive functioning, so making our plans and executing those plans directly related to how well and how long we sleep. 
our productivity. So despite that, that corporate culture of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead, mm-hmm. um, I'll stay up all night to get this work done. Science has proven over and over again that we are way more productive. We get more things done when we do balance with rest and sleep, um, not to mention accuracy. So the accuracy of the, what we're doing also is drastically impacted by how well we're sleeping. And that's more of the functions of like work. But then from a health perspective, we're increasing our risks for a lot of chronic illnesses when we are running on lack of sleep. So there's links with lack of sleep to Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiac disease, um, strokes, obesity, diabetes, a lot of these preventable health health problems. Even even cancer is linked to sleep deprivation. So not to mention also addictions, like so you're more susceptible to becoming addicted and to struggling with addiction um, as a person who's sleep deprived. So, you know, the other side of, of our health. Yeah, we lose, uh, you know, our impulse control, all of those things when we're sleep deprived. And that, like Leah said, that can be a an issue with addiction and substance abuse for sure. And sleep is a big factor that affects that. Well, well, I mean, it, it truly is a pillar of of good health and well-being. And I, mean, I just find it so amazing that we don't all prioritize it. Uh, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, too, about... Um, you know, sleep deprivation. What, like, what is sleep deprivation? If I go from, if I don't sleep well one night, um, two nights, three nights, is there a way to kind of define what it means to be sleep deprived? Yeah. So, recommended amount of sleep for an adult is seven to nine hours. So, just achieving less than seven hours of sleep puts us at a sleep deficit. So, that is putting us into the range of sleep deprivation. Now, it can be long-term sleep deprivation, which cannot be recouped. Everyone says, oh, can I catch up on my sleep? Long-term sleep deprivation, the answer is no, we can't really, especially when it's been years of, of getting less than seven hours of sleep. However, we can still correct our sleep and start getting the right amount of sleep. Short-term sleep loss can be recouped. So if you're normally achieving an adequate amount of sleep, seven to nine hours on pretty regular basis, and then maybe you have to work late or pull an all-nighter, your body generally can recoup that. Um, your brain will do everything it can to at least recoup the deep sleep and the REM sleep that we've lost from the night before. But when we do this chronically, so even just as an example, in a week, so a lot of people short sleep short amount of times during the week. So Monday to Friday, they're getting five or six hours, and then they're crashing on the weekends, those weekday warriors. Um, so. Monday to Friday, if you're supposed to be getting, you know, eight hours of sleep and you're only getting six, by Friday, you've accumulated a 10-hour sleep debt. It's nearly impossible on Saturday and Sunday to recoup an extra 10 hours. So it doesn't, if when you're doing it weekly, it adds up over time, it's not really possible to catch up, but it is possible to correct it and feel the benefits of being rested um, by getting adequate sleep instead of just catching up. Yeah. And once you do kind of correct your sleep patterns, it's not like you're feeling these, the deficit from these years of poor sleep. You can move forward feeling like a totally different person, feeling fully functional and everything in your body can, um, you know, 
become stronger and, and, you know, you can kind of re- recoup some of the damage, I guess you would say in, in your function and how you're feeling, but yeah, we can't really undo those lost years. And there is a great study that was done to compare how, um, with sleep deprivation, the levels of impairment that we experience in relation to blood alcohol content. Mm -hmm. So we often think about, you know, maybe pulling an all-nighter. So 24 hours without sleep gives us the same impairment level as someone with a 0.1% blood alcohol um, level as far as driving goes. We don't often think about that, you know, are you going to work after an all-nighter, that kind of thing. You probably wouldn't go to go to work intoxicated, but it's not even just the 24 hours, the the skipping all nights of sleep, the all-nighters. That same study showed that for people that are only getting five to six hours for a two-week period, leaves them with the same impairment level as if they had spent 24 hours awake and had the 0.1% blood alcohol content as far as impairment level goes. Wow. That's astounding. That's astounding. (laughs) I've also heard that fatigue itself can impair our ability to judge how tired we are. So (laughs) I'm wondering uh, how we might be able to tell ourselves if we're, if we're sleep deprived, like what are sort of some of the, what does that look like on the outside and how can we identify it ourselves? If, like I say, if, if fatigue impairs our ability to judge how tired we are, how can we judge how tired we are when we're tired? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sounds like a Dr. Seuss riddle, but you're right. <laughs> um, so this is something that we do talk about regularly, and we especially, um, you know, put it towards the leaders of workplaces as, you know, everyone should be alert to the signs of fatigue because fatigue doesn't always present as someone feeling sleepy. Fatigue can present like a whole bunch of different things. It can be, a, you know, someone that they're all of a sudden having angry outbursts at work. They're hard to get along with. It's affecting their relationships. Um, you know, see, seeing the sleep deprivation on someone's face, we wear our sleep deprivation on our faces. We get the dark circles, the bags under our eyes. Um, so being cognizant that there are signs of fatigue that other than just, are you sleepy is important for everyone. Because just like you said, we cannot judge it. Just like if, when you're, if you're drinking, you can't judge how impaired you are because you're impaired. (laughs) So it does become a challenge for sure. But um, making people aware that's part of the the education that we do is what does fatigue look like in your specific workplace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, for our lawyers, I think a huge one is executive function. So that is hugely important to working in law, you know, being able to keep the facts straight and being able to organize information and being able to present information in, in an organized way. And all of those, those planning and, and parts of your executive function. That is so huge for for lawyers. So that's something that falls apart almost immediately with sleep deprivation. Now, you can get used to a certain level of function over a prolonged period of sleep deprivation, just like Marley said. But, um, you know, if you find yourself hunting for words often or forgetting where you're putting things all of the time or um, losing your train of thought, you know, mid conversation or realize you hadn't been paying attention to somebody when they were speaking and, you know, cluing back in and going, oh my gosh, where was I? Those, all of those sort of parts of our function are very much tied to our quantity and quality of sleep. 
And it would be the, I'm going to say the last thing, but it certainly wouldn't be the top of the list of things that um, we would necessarily think would be the cause of, of some of those. Um, yeah, all those things. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you've been hearing, if, if there are any kind of common sleep related concerns that you're hearing from the lawyers that you're working with. Oh, yeah. The most common one is how do I shut my brain off (laughs) (laughs) for sleep? Um, We hear that a lot. Everyone wants an off switch, which would be amazing. Um, But I think it's that inability to disengage from work mode. And with the, you know, a lot of the hybrid working conditions, so you can work from home, we have so much technology. Now we can literally take our jobs right home with us. I think that presented another challenge for for a lot of people, but especially lawyers. Um, How do they disengage from work? How do they lay their head down on the pillow and not start planning the next million things? Or if they spent all day thinking about work and they have a family, then they hit the pillow and they're starting to plan, you know, the kids need to be at soccer at this time and and all of those things. And um, it doesn't really do us any service to us to have those thoughts when we should be sleeping. So, um, and they know that and they want that off switch. So we often... um, we teach relaxation techniques because that can become someone's off switch so they can actually disengage from work mode, lower the, the you know the arousal centers of their nervous system and actually have a restorative sleep and wake up the next morning with better executive function so they're more likely to complete yeah. all of those things that they had on their to-do list in their brain that night. Mm-hmm. The off switch is huge, but another big one is just the expectations of um, the expectations of their jobs and their workplaces are, you know, feel unrealistic to having that balance. So I think that's a big one um, that we run into as much as again, yeah, they want that off switch, but also like, how can I do this while I'm still meeting the requirements of work? How can I get eight hours of sleep in four hours? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of, yeah, that is exactly it. And we do focus um, on a lot on sleep quality with with lawyers because it's just not always possible for them to achieve sleep the sleep quantity that's required. So if they are only going to get four hours, how do we make that the best four hours possible for them? Um, so they're not also dealing with a deficit from sleep quality as well. Um, it's not ideal, but um, it's a it's a longstanding culture of overworkers and overachievers, and it's not going to change overnight. So um, although it's you know it's nice to that they. Um, we've been invited so many times to talk about sleep with this group. It's it's not going to change overnight. So I think a more practical approach for for people in this career is to focus on sleep quality as often as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are there any particular tips that um, you know you find people have been embracing more than others, and actually are working for them in terms of helping to improve the the sleep quality? Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the huge factors that we talk about is bedroom environment. So making sure that your bedroom environment is optimal for sleep, you know, that it's dark enough, that it's quiet enough, that it's comfortable enough, um, that it's cool enough. So, you know, we're often sleeping in bedrooms that are too warm and and that inhibits our body's ability to cool and get into deep stages of sleep. So a simple switch that somebody can make is to cool their bedroom down um, by even a degree or half a degree each night until you find a place where you feel like you're getting a better quality rest. We always tell people not to 
you know, if you're not sleeping at 22 right now, don't go down to 18 because you'll think you're freezing to death. <laughs> but um, those little simple things, so like, you know, having a good mattress, good pillows, having something for noise control, whether that be earplugs or um, a fan, air conditioner, white noise machine, um, having com- something comfortable to sleep in, comfortable bedding. Um, and we are big advocates for blackout curtains and eye masks, things to really black it out. Because like Marley said, if you can only get four hours of sleep, you really want those to be an optimal four hours. And an environment is the easiest, most passive way to change that for yourself. Yep. And and light yeah. is is such a strong influence on our sleep. So like Leah said, with the eye mask and blackout curtains, they're such a simple way. If you can't afford blackout curtains, an eye mask is around $5. It's the cheapest way to improve your sleep quality because there's actually some new research that has just come out saying that people that sleep with the lights on because our eyelids are translucent. They're not blackout curtains. Um, If you sleep with the lights on, you're increasing your risk for a whole bunch of of health problems, including cardiovascular problems, obesity, diabetes, just from one single night of sleeping with the lights on. So darkness is so important. And it's something that we often don't think about. I'm sure lots of lawyers come home from work and they probably could just pass out on their bed with the lights or TV on fully dressed because they're so exhausted. But just because you're exhausted and can fall asleep doesn't mean the sleep that you're getting is going to be restorative. So yeah, bedroom environment, it's it's an easy way without having to make behavioral change because behavioral change is hard for most people. (laughs) So setting up your environment is is probably the single easiest way. Yes. And it doesn't sound like there are like a lot of major changes that, um, no. you know, you're suggesting to help us achieve, you know, a better quality of sleep. Uh, and I love the idea of the eye mask and, um, you know, the, the darkness. And I'm wondering if that's time. I mean, I've heard a little bit about melatonin as well and its role in sleep is the reason for, um, darkening the environment to help us produce more melatonin. You got it, Shelly. Okay. <laughs> Yay, so, go to the head of the class. <laughs> melatonin is also known as the hormone of darkness. Hmm. Um, so it is only produced in the dark. So we see, you know, astronomical rates of people taking in um, artificial melatonin every single night. They're giving it to their kids. They're taking it. They're taking it at doses that are you know, hundreds of times more than what our brain would naturally make. The problem isn't that we aren't, that we are melatonin deficient or anything like that. It's that we're inundated with artificial light. Screen lights tell our brain, oh, it's blue light. Okay. It's sunlight. The sun is up. Don't create melatonin. So we don't need, all these people don't need to take artificial melatonin to induce sleep or to have a good sleep. And it's minimally effective that way anyway. Um, We just need to expose our eyes at night to darkness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when we're holding our phones close, you know, up to our nose right before we go to sleep, and then we toss and turn for an hour, it's actually because our brains just interpreted that the sun was shining in our eyes. So 
um, and that delays the onset of melatonin. And then if there's light in our room throughout the night, it stops our melatonin production. Our brain goes, oh, it's time to wake up. There's light. And um, even with our eyeballs closed, because again, our eyelids are translucent and um, our receptors in our eyes can pick up on even the littlest bits of light. So it does cause melatonin disruptions throughout the night and causing people to wake up frequently, toss and turn, not be able to get back to sleep. Um, and they're not realizing how important that light is. And, you know, a lot of people, they wake up in the middle of the night. The first thing they do is grab their phone and stare at the light. So, um, I would say light is, is definitely the big um, problem with melatonin. It's not that there's some type of uh, melatonin deficiency going on amongst humans these days. (laughs) And yes. And that actually leads to another really tangible strategy that we use with a lot of lawyers because it is, again, a passive strategy, and that's the use of blue light blocking glasses. And I think you did speak with Dr. Lee last year, the year before, I guess now, um, on that a little bit. And and everything he said absolutely is right. And why it works so well for lawyers is because realistically... um, most lawyers are going to be doing some work in the evening. They're going to need to be on their laptops. They're going to need to be on their phones. Um, and even if it's just a wind down, they want to watch a little TV or do something like that. And maybe it's creeping close to bedtime. So those orange hue lenses, like not just the ones with the sheer coating on them or eyeglasses, but true blue light blocking glasses with a yellow or orange toned um, lens really do filter out all the the full spectrum of blue light and will allow our bodies to start making melatonin, even when we're exposed to some light in the environment, as long as they're kind of covering uh, all around our eyes and and um, filtering that light out. So that's a, that's a really important one in the evening, pop on your glasses and it kind of, it's not perfect. You know, ideally we're not exposed to light period. We don't need to wear these glasses, but it is something to help mitigate the effects of the light exposure in the evening. Right. And if you have to be on a device, um, I have to say that I've, yeah, I have a pair of those glasses, but you you say about how like almost got the sense you you want something that wraps around. Like I just have regular glasses that go over my glasses and I kind of feel like there's a little area on either side where the light still does get through. Like, is that something we should pay attention to when we're looking to get glasses like that? The ones that actually wrap around? Uh, those are ideal. I mean, okay. if you're using any kind of orange filter on your glasses, that's helpful. But mm-hmm. the, the glasses that I know Leah and I wear and the ones that we promote are fully wrap around. They're like safety goggles. They look like, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not the most attractive, but they, they really work and <laughs> they, they block out. Yeah, because Leah's a shift worker still. She's still working as a nurse. So um, she wears them, you know, in the morning after a night shift before she's on her way you know, to go to bed. Um, and sometimes she's walking home when the sun is shining. So she needs that full coverage. So there's no little peaks of light coming in. Right. Yeah. And the ch- chances are, Shelly, if you do have the orange tone lenses, if it's just a little bit of leaking around, it's still doing you a world of good to have those on there. So, uh, I mean, I wouldn't stress too much, but, you know, <laughs> when you're looking for your next pair, you look for something a little less cute, a little more wraparound. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, something I didn't even think about until, uh, yeah, until you were talking about it. And mm-hmm. something else I had heard about certain apps that you can use to either dim, I guess, get rid of or reduce the blue light on your devices themselves. 
So I've heard of something, this is going back, probably one of the, the first ones, a night shift on your phone. But I heard also you can get them on your laptop and desktop as well. Yes. Yeah, so uh, night shift, I think, was the original one for the iPhone. And it does change the the color to more orange hue, kind of a sunset color, a warmer hue. And then the one for laptops is called F-Lux. Uh, and it works pretty good. It's on. Uh, it really make changes the the tone of your your screen to an orange tone naturally as as uh, the day progresses, just as the sun would. So, it's basically mimicking sunshine. Um, so sunset tones in the evening. However, there has been some recent research that shows that like it's not as effective as wearing blue light blocking glasses. Hmm. So I pair up both. I lower the the brightness of my screen. I make them the orange color. I have the orange glasses on if I'm going to be on my screens in the evening. I recommend doing all of the things just because light is so important and can impact that melatonin production so easily that, um, yeah, doing all the, taking all the precautions is, is really important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important to think about, you know, we've only had 24 hour light for maybe a hundred years or a little bit more. And we've been around for, you know, thousands. So our biology, our genetics just haven't um, sort of accommodated for that yet. So we haven't evolved to have all of this, you know, extra light exposure that we're not used to. That's why it's so important to, um, you know, pay attention to your light exposure and to adjust your light exposure. It's just one of the easiest ways to make a really dramatic difference. And then I've also heard about um, sort of the other end in the mornings, increasing your exposure to light so that you know, your body sort of naturally wakes up. Yes, we're a big proponents of getting sunshine or bright light therapy within the first hour of being awake. That is one of the, you know, the best things that everybody can do. I mean, getting outside and getting natural light from the sun is something we're all probably a little bit deficient in if we work inside. I think the stat was like people spend 99% of the day inside or something like that. It was a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we live in Atlantic Canada. So getting up in the morning, sometimes it's not light outside and there's no sunshine. <laughs> so we, we advocate for using sad lamps. So the bright light therapy lamps that are used for seasonal effect disorder. They're used in sleep medicine for, you know, to basically replace the sun when we, it's not available. And they're really effective tools um, to be able to get that bright light in an easier way. Because sometimes too, like the, the weather just doesn't cooperate with us. Yeah. And especially if you're not, you know, achieving that seven to nine hours of sleep, you're going to hear that alarm go off in the morning at six or 7am and go, I'm not ready to wake up. And then what do we do? We snooze our alarm and snooze our alarm and lay there. And um, so getting the bright light right away, that's what I, I often tell people, put, put your bright light therapy lamp right on your nightstand. That's what I did when I started to do bright light therapy. And it made it so much easier for me because I was a snoozer. I was, a uh, you know, hitting the snooze multiple times. Um, so hitting that bright light and getting the exposure right away as soon as you open your eyes really helps solidify that circadian rhythm. So it's like, okay, it's morning, we're awake, the sun is up, here we go. 
And then we don't spend a whole lot of our day. Like Marley said, I think there's something, you know, most people spend less than an hour outside in natural light. And oftentimes when we do, it's with sunglasses on. So we're really not getting the benefits of our, our circadian rhythm being, being really robust from that light exposure that we were designed to be programmed by. So we're not getting that regulation that we need. So by by exposing yourself early in the morning and then dimming lights in the evening, we're sort of mimicking that natural light pattern. And that really helps us sleep better, a better quality sleep and um, even better quantity for a lot of people. And you mentioned about, Leah, dimming lights in the evening. Um, mm. What What do you mean by that? Like throughout your house to dim the lights? Yeah, like in all senses. So, I mean, there is apps actually now. So similar to changing the light behind our phones, there's actually light bulbs that can be programmed to change colors. So there's all kinds of new technologies coming out all the time. Um, and, you know, right now, yeah, light bulbs that are tunable so we can change the hue to a reddish orange tone for the evenings. But not everybody has access to that or, or has the ability to do that. So we can also dim the lights or turn off our overhead lights and use um, a small lamp. You can get, you know, right. we don't have those classic incandescent lamp light bulbs that we love, but yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so and using a lamp. And night lights. Night lights yes. can be a huge help, um, you know, especially for safety and things like that. We don't want to be exposed to a lot of light, if, even if we have to get up throughout the night to use the washroom or anything like that, because it can disrupt our melatonin production and we want to be able to fall right back to sleep. So mm-hmm. night lights can be a, a, a huge benefit for safety without it interrupting our sleep. And you can buy red light bulb night mm-hmm. light. Um, red and- or orange, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And even ones that are censored. So they just kind of come on as you walk by um, are a great alternative. But yeah, just in general, le- the less the amount of artificial white light you have expo- you're exposing yourself to in the evening, the better, uh, you know, the better able you'll be to fall asleep um, come bedtime. Yeah. Fall asleep and then stay asleep. Now, is there a difference in terms of um, sort of tools that you would recommend if you're struggling to, first of all, fall asleep versus sort of waking up frequently throughout the night and having a hard time falling back to sleep? There are some different tools for that. So difficulty falling asleep or initiating sleep, um, you know, it can have to do with creating that, you know, that disengaging from work mode, creating a relaxing bedtime routine, preparing your brain and body that you're going to go to sleep. So when we're go, 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 go all day, even if we're exhausted, we actually need that wind down to be able to fall asleep. Um, And then the, the, sleep maintenance. So the ability to stay asleep throughout the night, that's when a lot of like the relaxation techniques, because stress is something that commonly will disrupt our sleep. So if we're waking up a lot throughout the night, it's usually stress related. If it's not environment, you know, we can wake up because our room is too warm as well. But if it's, if it's stress related, teaching relaxation techniques becomes like the, the, 
best secret weapon against waking up throughout the night or getting yourself back to sleep. So once people are trained in these relaxation techniques, which are just quick breathing techniques, guided meditation, yoga nidra, different things like that, um, then they just can employ that once if they wake up in the night, oh no, I'm awake, I'll start this breathing technique, and then they can fall back to sleep quickly. And waking up throughout the night is fairly normal for most people. I think average amount to wake up that's considered normal is six times a night. That's because we cycle through our sleep cycle about five or six times. But what's not normal is if we can't fall back to sleep immediately. So then that's when we start seeing problems with sleep maintenance. And in that case, those relaxation techniques can be a huge benefit because your body wants more sleep. It's still exhausted. We just have to be able to, you know, not get our brain activated, starting to plan the following day, creating a stress response that's going to keep us awake for longer and um, being able to calm our nervous system quickly and easily and get back to sleep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking too, just the, the stress of being awake and not being able to fall back to sleep. You know, that's something yeah. I've experienced a lot. It's like, oh no, you know, I've got to get up in two hours. I got to fall back to sleep right now. And of course I don't. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The stressor of, uh, we were kind of joking about this before and we do often sleep is like the one thing in our lives that the harder we try to do it, the worse we get at it. So it's like the only thing that the harder you work at, the more you're going to struggle with. So it's really difficult. A lot of times our clients are high achieving people, you know, a lot of lawyers, maybe that type A sort of high achieving person. And it becomes extremely frustrating when the thing that you need to do and that you know that you want to do, you can't make it happen. So it's sometimes just acknowledging that fact that, you know, the harder I try, that the worse this is going to be, can be, it's sort of a powerless feeling. And I think that's the common thread when it comes to difficulty sleeping is that feeling of powerlessness that you, that you can't make it happen. Yeah. And that's a a big component of insomnia therapy. So the very first strategy that we teach in insomnia therapy is cognitive restructuring. So changing the way that we're thinking and feeling about our sleep and about sleep loss. Because if we're, you know, having difficulty falling asleep night after night, we have a learned experience that, well, when I'm going to go lay down, I'm going to toss and turn and it's going to be miserable and I'm going to stress about it. And we're already anticipating being frustrated. And then if we do wake up in the middle of the night, then the first thought that's going to pop into our head is, oh no, I'm awake again. What am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to get back to sleep. And the stress response in our body is activated. And then that, you know, prevents us from falling back to sleep even further. So it's changing that first step is, is changing that, uh, that whole thought process because it is a stressor in itself. Um, when you can't, when you can't fall asleep or you keep waking up throughout the night. Yeah, it's just practicing that rewiring. And that takes a long time. It takes people a while to start to be able to identify those thoughts. It's like, oh, I'm never going to fall back to sleep is your immediate response. And that seems totally reasonable. Of course, you're frustrated. You do need to fall back to sleep. But it's saying to yourself, okay, this is not going to serve me right now. I will fall back to sleep eventually, even if it takes a little while. It's just having that conversation with yourself and like bringing the pressure down of that, you know, I've done this before, I can handle this. That's a huge factor in overcoming insomnia. And that's the one strategy that we start with, like Marley said, and we carry through the whole um, six week insomnia program that we do. It's also an important preventative thing for a lot of people. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it's just so it is so um, such a, a mental game. <laughs> like I just, you know, yeah. having been there myself, I'm not the best sleeper. I'm better than I was, but I know exactly everything is just so different. The way you think is so different in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes. You're very hard on yourself. And that's the sleep deprivation coming through. So, you know, that reasonable voice that you normally have in your head becomes very unreasonable when it's tired. Um, so it becomes harder to control those thoughts. So the more you practice it, the stronger that muscle becomes. And when we're not, you know, we wake up in the night and we have that different train of thought, our brain is telling us things that aren't true. It's not true that you're not going to be able to get through the next day. You've probably, realistically, we've probably all gotten through a day where we didn't have enough sleep or, you know, I'm I'm never going to fall back to sleep. Well, most nights you probably do fall back to sleep, but our anxiety or our stress response from, from being awake and having that learned experience of, oh, I'm struggling with my sleep. And then it's, stress about it um, actually does prevent us from falling back to sleep. So it is a bit of a vicious cycle. And um, I always tell people as just for basics, if you tell yourself you're a bad sleeper, stop, start telling yourself that you're a good sleeper (laughs) (laughs) and you might actually sleep better. (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) And I'm wondering, do are there other, are there any other sort of sleep, the things that get in the way of us having a good night's sleep? Um, we've talked about a few of them, but are there other ones that maybe we haven't touched on? I think um, one that's going to make us very unpopular, but uh, is necessary to talk about is caffeine and alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're two big sleep disruptors. Um, I don't think most people recognize the cycle of caffeine and feeling tired. So a lot of people, as weird as this sounds, we get them to cut back on caffeine and they actually start feeling more alert during the day. Mm-hmm. So what happens with caffeine is um, we we take it to wake up and then, okay, we start drinking it and maybe we're drinking it until three o'clock in the afternoon. And caffeine has an approximate half-life of about six hours. So six hours from then, you still have half the amount that you originally consumed. So a lot of people are going to bed and sleeping with some amount of caffeine on board. So the even though they're tired, they're exhausted, they can sleep with caffeine on board. The quality of their sleep is very poor. So then they wake up the following morning and then they also have an addiction to caffeine, a craving for it. And so they're going to continue that cycle of drink ca- coffee all day or caffeine all day. Um, and then, you know, go to sleep, have a poor quality sleep, wake up and need caffeine again. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle. <laughs> and then um, you get to start drinking more and more caffeine to try and get more and more alertness during the day which impedes your sleep more, which impedes our function more. So that's a really vicious cycle. And really the only way to break that is to really significantly cut back your caffeine. I would say, you said a lot of people, I would say most people who do drink caffeine are sleeping with some level of caffeine metabolism going on, which is going to interfere with the quality of your sleep. And you won't even know it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We don't attribute it to that because... Once we put something in our bodies, we tend to not think about it anymore. We drank that coffee, it's gone. We don't think about it anymore, but our body's very much still working on it. And yeah. we often hear the, you know, the old guy saying, oh, I can drink a large venti from Starbucks or I can drink a large double-double and go right to sleep. And we're like, okay, I'm sure you can, but that's because you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. 
And it doesn't mean that once you fall asleep, your brain is going through the sleep cycles in a normal, healthy way, and you're not reaping the benefits and you're not waking up refreshed. So um, being able to fall asleep after you drink a large coffee is also not something we should be wearing a, a badge of honor for. <laughs> yes, It's actually an indication of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just, it's not just coffee, you know, chocolate and mm. And then I can get something that, you know, I often forget about and think, oh, well, and or even decaf coffee. I've switched to yes. decaf coffee, but that still has caffeine in it. That's You're right. Absolutely right. And a lot of people don't know that, Shelly. A lot of people don't know that decaf does have trace amounts of caffeine. And if you're drinking enough cups of it, it's it's still adding up. It's still going to take your body a while to metabolize it. So although it's a better choice, it's still something that you need to be mindful of. How late are you consuming decaf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even green tea. I mean, that was, a, that was a surprise to me. It's natural and, you know, it's touted as a great alternative. But why? Because it's natural. Quote, here we go. The air quotes again, it's naturally caffeinated. Uh, yeah. So there's still caffeine in it. That's right. Yeah. Natural caffeine doesn't mean any less detrimental to our sleep. Right. And when, you know, we think about what a serving size of coffee is, it's, you know, by all standards, it's an eight ounce coffee has about 100 milligrams of caffeine. You cannot purchase a coffee that small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the smallest coffee you can buy now is 12 ounces. So our our portions of, of what we're drinking as far as coffee, energy drinks, all of those things are a lot more than they ever used to be too. Um, and that increases the caffeine content that is left in our body to metabolize. Mm, not to mention coffee shops are open 24 hours now. <laughs> Good <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> not helping us. Not no. helping us. <laughs> when, we, when we drive by a coffee shop and there's like a car lineup in the drive-thru, I just, I always drive. I'm like, oh, there must be a lot of shift workers today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no way these people are drinking this and going to bed. <laughs> My own oh, wow. Um, <laughs> There is a benefit as well, though, um, for the caffeine consumers, because we don't believe caffeine is bad. Caffeine is excellent. It's, coffee is a good antioxidant. It's great for the liver. Um, there's a lot of benefits. We want caffeine to work when we need it. You know, if you do have a short night of sleep, you do want to f- be able to feel the effects of that ca- caffeine. And by cutting back, it does make it more effective for when you need it, for sure. Um yeah, instead of drinking habitually, you know, multiple large coffees all through the day and sipping all day long, if you just have, you know, one quick shot of coffee, you know, an actual serving, maybe eight ounces or 10 or something, and kind of just have that in the morning when you need it, instead of drinking it all day long, then you're going to get that alertness that comes with it. But when we're constantly running with a certain level of caffeine in our systems, of course, it's not going to be as effective. We're not going to get that jolt of energy we're looking for. And then we just drink more. Yeah. And if you need a tip to be able to reduce that caffeine without feeling sleepy during the day, because you might feel that for the first week as you're decreasing your caffeine is get some sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> that will help. That will counteract the, the sleepiness that you might feel. Or you could use your bright light therapy lamp as well, sunlight or bright light therapy lamp, but getting outside in the afternoon, take your sunglasses off and just take in some natural light for a few minutes on a break from work or anytime you can step outside, you're going to get a level of alertness from exposure to that light. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I'm just, as you're talking about getting that shot of caffeine, I'm thinking of an, an espresso bar in Italy and, you know, you walk in, no one sits down, you just get your shot of espresso, down it in one go and off you go to work. And I'm yeah. starting to recognize there's a lot of benefits to that. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, there's a benefit to delaying caffeine. A lot of people wake up um, and the first thing they do is they groggily, you know, walk to the kitchen and turn on their ca- coffee maker. Um, and the first thing that they have in their in their stomach and their system is a cup of coffee so they can wake up. There are benefits to delaying drinking coffee for about, you know, an hour to 90 minutes after we wake up. So the best thing you can do is probably wake up, get exposure to sunlight or, or bright light therapy, maybe a bit of exercise or movement and then caffeine. That's going to help us with that caffeine crash. So we'll get the effects of that caffeine longer into the day without it being, you know, it's not slower to metabolize or anything. But when we get that caffeine crash around two to three o'clock, it is so tempting for everybody to reach for something to wake us up. So by just delaying, you know, you're, if you're normally waking up at seven and you're, you're drinking a cup of coffee by 7.05, try not to have your first cup of coffee until maybe eight, nine o'clock in the morning and you'll feel better throughout the day. You'll have more sustainable energy without that crash. And that's because the the chemicals in our brain, when we wake wake up, um, if we can get exposure to light and a little bit of movement, those will naturally clear out and make us feel more. So our melatonin will naturally, you know, absorb and go away and our 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 denizine that makes us feel sleepy that will naturally go away and then when we have caffeine it's not just clearing those chemicals away it's actually doing its job so it can be really beneficial um to have that one cup of coffee about an hour or two after you wake up and then that that be it for the day (laughs) yeah i like that wow great yeah all these tips so so helpful oh my goodness and I'm just thinking too, now that we're sort of starting to travel a little bit more for work and, and pleasure. Um, one of the things that, um, I always struggle with because I'm not the best sleeper is dealing with jet lag and kind of, you know, time zone changes. Any mm-hmm. tips to help with that? Yes, we uh, we actually just talked to the the LSO about about sleep and travel, which is wonderful because it means that travel is happening again. It hasn't been something that we've had to really necessarily worry about in the last few years, but now it's happening again. And and there are some really good strategies um, to prepare yourself for travel to mitigate the effects of, of of jet lag because so often we're traveling for work and you know we're crossing multiple time zones landing and then expecting to be working um you know the very next day and be on maybe it's for a conference or a presentation or you know court or something like that and you want to be firing on all cylinders you don't have an extra week for your body to adjust to the new time zone um so we do talk a lot about about strategies um maybe Maybe, Leah, you want to talk about the the use of bright light? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's huge. So using, you know, uh, I would always travel with a bright light therapy lamp. They're super easy to pack. They're, you know, about the size of a book. Most of them are a little bit thicker. Um, and that actually helps you adjust to your new time zone a lot easier. So first thing in the morning there, now, de- depending on which direction you're traveling in and what you're struggling with, it doesn't really matter as long as you prioritize prioritize, you know, whatever time you're going to be waking up for the morning at your new time zone, getting that bright light exposure at, you know, as soon as you wake up in that new time zone is going to help sort of set your circadian rhythm 
to that new time zone much more quickly. So instead of maybe sleeping, napping a lot and sleeping at different times and that kind of thing, if you kind of keep yourself on the new schedule right away using light as a guide, um, will make a huge difference in how you adjust and how quickly you adjust. Oh, wow. I love that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and you, if you have the luxury of pre-adjusting your sleep prior to travel, um, you can use your bright light and timed light and timed darkness to help get you closer to your destination schedule before you leave. So there is less of a, a jet lag issue, but light is such a strong, strong influence that a lot of people find that, you know, they, they don't experience jet lag when they do prepare with, with light and darkness. And the other thing is to like, you know, get a little bit of exercise at the same time that you're getting exposure to the bright light, that kind of thing, just to give your body all the signals. Okay. This is the new schedule we're on. Um, wake up. <laughs> I think sometimes, yeah, and just adjusting your sleep slowly. So pulling your bedtime a little bit earlier each night, maybe for the few days leading up to travel, if you're traveling back in time, I guess you could say, and otherwise just staying up a little bit later, you know, just to try and gradually adjust yourself, especially if you're somebody who is very routine, always waking same time, going to bed around the same time, that that's, those are the people who, um, jet lag really hits hard. So you can adjust your sleep time even by 15 minutes. So if you're normally in bed by 10 p.m. and you need to be, you know, moving your bedtime up, go at 9.45 the next night, 9.30, using light to kind of, you know, dim dim lighting and blue light blocking glasses to prepare for bed a little bit earlier. And if you need to stay up later, you can start by going 10.15 or 10.30 and just kind of pushing yourself um, in that way and, and maybe using light in the early evening to try and keep yourself awake a little bit longer. So, as, as much as we say light and dark are so important for day-to-day -day function, when it comes to traveling through time zones, they're hugely important. And, you know, we always tell people those tools that you use in your bedtime or at your in your bedroom at home, things like your sleep mask or a white noise machine or earplugs, those sorts of things. The wonderful thing about using those each night at home is they can travel with you. And then you're taking a piece of your home sleep environment on the road with you. So you're putting that familiar mask down over your eyes. And our brains are so smart. They're so plastic. They're always learning. They have such a strong association with sleep and that eye mask when you only use it for sleep time. So when we pull that mask down over our eyes, even if we're in a new city in a new time zone, our brain is going to go, oh, it's sleep time now. So those little cues can be really helpful when you're traveling and those little tools that can come with you. It's also easier to travel west um, because it's easier to, for us to stay up later than it is easier for eastward travel. So when we have to start being able to fall asleep earlier and wake up earlier, that's really when you want to use all the tools. So because it's a easier, we can control, you know, what time we fall asleep by just staying up. That's a lot easier than being able to say like, okay, now I'm falling asleep now because we don't really <laughs> do that. <laughs> Um, so using all the tools, like the blue light blocking glasses, like Leah said, things to give your body the signal, like, oh, start producing melatonin now. The, the, it's it's going to be dark where I'm going. Um, it really could make a big difference for that eastward travel, for sure. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the downsides when you go east, you've always got to come back west. So you're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. One way or the other, you're going to get you're going to get the experience. But, you know, all of those things and a lot of our presentation with the Law Society of Ontario this year um, was focused on circadian science and a big portion of it was on travel as well. So, you know, all of those the things that help solidify our our circadian rhythm and help dictate our circadian rhythm things like when we eat when we sleep our light exposure all of those things are really important to consider when we are traveling so you know all of those things that we tend to indulge in when we travel we go oh i have to travel so i'm going to be you know i'm drinking on the plane i'm going to do this i'm going to nap whenever i want you kind of we kind of lean into sort of these behaviors um but if we can kind of put a little bit of parameter around them and, you know, not allow ourselves to sleep just whenever we're, we're feeling tired, you know, maybe try and get ourselves on a schedule, keep ourselves awake until we need to be sleeping um, in that new time zone that can be really helpful. And, you know, eating to tell our body it's time to be awake. Um, even if it's just drinking water or something like that, that can be a good cue for our circadian rhythm um, when you're entering a new time zone. Yeah, yeah, it all makes such good sense, and it does require some planning and preparation. Um, but to me, it's so worth it. Having been exactly in that situation where I'm in court, I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't even like know my name. Yes. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Not good. But wow, uh, such a wealth of information uh, from the two of you. What a uh, just a delight speaking with you. I'm just wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners. I just have I have one last thing. Um, and I it, Leah and I talk about this, and this is for lawyers, anybody, you know, family members. Leah and I are big advocates for asking other people how you're sleeping. So everyone's gonna say, Oh, how are you? But if you really want to find out how somebody is, and especially for leaders of these law firms and things like that, ask how people are sleeping and you will actually find out how they're doing. So it's oh. very important. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And wow, I'm sure you'll get more than fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. So be, be prepared for the answer that comes, but it also helps to build a culture of openness in the workplace. So, you know, sleep is really intimate and can be really personal, but it's also a way to show um, your colleagues and maybe your employees and, you know, your, co- you know, anyone in your workplace that you care about how they're doing and you understand um, about work-life balance because sleep is so huge in that. And, you know, just making sure that you know how your team is doing. Uh, that's a really great way to open up that conversation. Yeah, it's so great. And I mean, we all sleep and we've all had struggles with sleep from time to time. So what a great way to just kind of bring us closer to our colleagues as well. Exactly. Everyone yeah. sleeps. <laughs> everyone sleeps. Yes, everyone sleeps. But uh, yeah, so how can listeners learn more about you, reach out to you? Um, yeah, what's the best way? So we, you can contact us through our website. It's www.sleep.com 
www.ashworks.com. Um, that would be the best way you can send us a message through there. We do a lot of group therapy for insomnia, individual therapy for insomnia, consulting. So even if it's not insomnia, but something else, we help people navigate the healthcare system um, through the sleep labs and all of that stuff as well. Or if you just have a sleep question, we love a good sleep question. We're, we're never tired of them. So, um, you know, if anyone has any questions, reach out. And you can book a free 15-minute consultation. So we we offer free 15 minutes to kind of, if people just don't really know what to expect, they don't really understand how sleep sleep consulting works and what that means and what we can do for them. Um, but maybe they've been struggling with sleep, book that free chat and we can talk about, you know, what your options are and what we do and how we can serve you. Um, and there's no obligation to book anything otherwise. So if you're just interested in learning about... Um, what we do and and how we help people that's a great way to do it fantastic fantastic well thank you both for just sharing such wonderful tips and uh, all of your wisdom and advice and for starting sleepworks what a fantastic fantastic idea and um yeah i really encourage everyone to reach out and 15 minute uh free consultation pretty amazing there's a lot that you can talk about in 15 minutes absolutely yeah. Thank you so much for having us, Shelly. This is our favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at XLLegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.